The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Katie Royfe, the journalist and author of several books, including The Morning After, Sex, Fear, and Feminism, and The Violet Hour, Great Raiders at the End. She's also the director of the Cultural Reporting and Criticism Program at NYU's School of Journalism. Her latest piece in Harper's Magazine is called The Other Whisper Network, How Twitter Feminism is Bad for Women. Its publication followed a controversy. Once word got out that Royfi was planning to publish the essay, which a number of writers and others feared would out the creator of the so-called shitty media men list, Royfi and Harper's faced a storm of online backlash and in some cases abuse. The creator of the list, Moira Donegan, ended up outing herself in an essay for New York magazine The Cut. Royfi's piece, meanwhile, was released last weekend. It took account of the controversy and described what she thinks is a climate of fear online and elsewhere about ideas that depart from doctrinaire feminism regarding the Me Too movement. Katie Royfi joins me now from New York City. Katie, are you at your house? I'm in my house. Okay, well, thank you for being on the program. Uh, Thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little bit about kind of when you started writing about women's issues and for people who don't know your work, how long you've been you've been writing uh, about this stuff for. Well, it's been um, a long time, um, though I haven't written about these issues solidly. When I was uh, about 23, I was a graduate student in literature, and I wrote a piece for The New York Times comparing the date rape pamphlets given out on college campuses um, to Victorian guides to conduct for young ladies. And I was just kind of analyzing the language. I was a graduate student in literature. And sort of talking about how I felt both were kind of infantilizing to women and against the goals of feminism. And that that piece turned into my first book, which came out in 1993. So you, you were now, uh, I guess, 25 years later uh, after your first book. Um, is that right? Did I do that math correctly? I did. Yes, long time. Long time. And um, obviously we're at a very... Uh, maybe hinge moment for uh, feminism with the Me Too movement. And so I guess I'm wondering um, what you sort of made of the movement when it when it started and what you make of where we are right now. Well, I think that um, things have changed a lot because of social media. And so um, some of the things that disturbed me in the early 90s, which had to do with a kind of intolerance of dissent and a sort of thought policing of anybody who strayed even the tiniest bit from the kind of official party line of feminism um, has gotten more intense and immediate now because of Twitter. And so there's kind of a vicious hatred aimed at anyone who kind of dares to deviate from the, you know, basic feminist positions. And I guess in terms of Me Too, Um, like everyone else, I was very exhilarated by this moment and the kind of hopefulness of bringing powerful men who abuse their power to account. But I was also a little bit uneasy at the weird energy in the movement. And that's kind of something that I talk about in my piece in Harper's Magazine. But I really, um, I felt that I it's, I noticed that the things people were saying to me secretly or things people were saying in private were very different from what they were willing to say out loud publicly. Um, and it was, it was that atmosphere, that kind of feeling that I began to write this piece from. And it's kind of a, a defense of ambivalence or, or ambiguity or nuance. And that, you know, that, that I see this piece as a kind of need to think more deeply about the feminism we're embracing right now. 
So in terms of the feminism that you think people are embracing right now that you feel, to use your word, more ambivalent on, what, what specifically, what sort of things are you specifically talking about? Well, um, there are a couple of things. Um, and one is that I feel some of the ideas being put forward in this feminism um, are a little bit condescending toward women and sort of embedded, and this is something that I wrote about in the 90s, in, in some of this language uh, and in some of these scenarios is the idea that women aren't kind of sexual beings um, who have their own desires and their own um, agency. And that I find unnerving. But I also I also do feel um, concerned at the collapsing of um, behavior. So there was a line I quote in the piece, Rebecca Traster said, you know, in some ways we're as angry at a man looking down our shirt as we are at Harvey Weinstein. And, and I guess it's that collapsing of a man looking down your shirt becomes as bad as Harvey Weinstein and the kind of the way in which our anger right now is, is getting aimed at all men or a whole series of behaviors. To me, that's that's sort of depressing, um, along with what I see as a kind of a lack of interest in due process. And I guess to me, it would seem important that men are not just accused. Any man who's accused of something has a sort of fair hearing um, and that we really, you know, we, we give them the benefit of, of, you know, our American judicial system, which does presume innocence. Um, and I guess there's a little bit of of a kind of impatience with that due process that also makes me nervous. Right. Uh, just just to be clear, the 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 thing you're quoting from Rebecca Traster, she she follows that up in the same sentence and says uh, about the rage looking down someone sh- looking down our shirt at a company retreat as we are about Weinstein by saying even if we can't acknowledge that there's something nuts about that, a weird overreaction. Yeah, she's she's yeah she totally acknowledges it as a weird overreaction. It's just that I kind of feel that that weird overreaction is very prevalent. And, you know, she might be one of the few people who can say this is an overreaction or this is a weird overreaction. I think there are also people who get lost in that anger right now. I, I just want to turn specifically to the piece you wrote uh, mm. for Harper's, which, as I said in the intro, is called The Other Whisper Network, How Twitter Feminism is Bad for Women. So in this piece, you kind of talk about, you you quote a writer at the New Republic, you said it has the tone of a low-level secret policeman in a new totalitarian state. The word Maoism appears. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, I, I think we can acknowledge that there's a lot of crazy stuff said on Twitter on all sides, um, and that you yourself had got a lot of uh, abuse on Twitter, which was, which uh, you should certainly talk about, which was, a lot of it was pretty disgusting. Um, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is there a way in which you think maybe that we too often conflate crazy people or angry people saying things on Twitter with kind of real world effects about people losing their jobs or something else that are not entirely existent in the real world? So I don't think it's just Twitter people are afraid of. I mean, I was, you know, you you probably saw that Saturday Night Live skit about Aziz Ansari where the lights come on and, you know, they're starting to have a conversation at a dinner about whether Aziz Ansari did something wrong and everybody freaks out and can't speak and is totally stressed out about even expressing the slightest opinion. And I think some of it is people are worried about Twitter, but I also talk to a lot of people who are afraid for their jobs. And to be totally honest with you, Isaac, if I didn't have tenure at NYU, I don't know if I would have written this piece. 
Um, you know, I have a certain, I'm lucky enough to have a certain amount of job security. A lot of people don't have, and there are definitely people calling NYU trying to get me fired. Um, every day there were people making these calls and tweets and, um, you know, people were threatening me on Twitter, you know, your job is over, your career is over. And, you know, if you're a writer or you're a freelance writer or you're a novelist, like you don't necessarily feel you can brook that kind of um, threat. And so I and I have certainly talked to a lot of people who've said, I can't write this because I'm scared for my livelihood. Right. I um, Well, that I, I don't want to dismiss people's experiences. I, I guess the question that I would say is I feel like after the Aziz Ansari piece dropped that almost every website I went to ran a critical piece. I mean, I can just say not being afraid to say this, that I thought the Aziz Ansari piece was very poorly done. I did not think it was good journalism. And I thought that a mm. lot of the stuff in there did not would, did not appear in its proper context. And I felt that the point of view I just expressed was all over websites, the New York Times, uh, everything I read. And so I, I sort of get the Saturday Night oh, Live. Oh, you're totally right. Yeah. I think that was a turning point, actually. I think the Aziz Ansari thing um, sort of opened it up where it suddenly became sort of okay to look at that question, and especially, you know, when she's saying, you know, he didn't offer me um, the right kind of wine, I think people look at that and, and you know, there was a lot to kind of deconstruct. And, and there was pu- much more um, public debate, you know, sort of authentic public debate about that. But as I was writing the piece, which was in, you know, November, December, uh, there was a, definitely a different mood about this stuff. And, I, you know, one of the things about a cultural climate like this is it's moving very quickly. Um, but I think you're right. I think the Aziz Ansari thing opened it up a little bit. And, um, and you know, I also think, you know, people keep, I've noticed people saying, you know, but you feel like you're able to speak out. I, I, I don't want to underestimate that it was very hard for me to write this piece that I was, you know, waking up at 5am and thinking like, should I be doing this? You know, it was not that easy for me to write this piece. And, and I think, you know, in the kind of craziness and hysteria that surrounded this piece. And as you pointed out, this kind of Twitter frenzy where people are suddenly, you know, strangers are calling me like human scum and a ghoul and like, you know, suck my dick, Katie Roy like that fury was case in point. It was exhibit A for what I was trying to write about. I mean, the reason people are scared is they're worrying about a little tiny bit of that hatred. And maybe it's not even on Twitter. It could be, you know, in your office. But to feel that fury aimed at you is obviously, you know, no one in their right mind would want to do it. And I don't even know why I would want to do it. Yes. To to be clear, I do not want to defend people saying, suck my dick, Katie Roifey, on Twitter. I don't think that's acceptable and uh, those people should be banned from Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. And I can certainly tell you as someone who writes about politics that uh, I occasionally write articles, whether it's about the Trump administration or back in, during the Democratic primary about Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, where people would send me mean Facebook messages and so on. And, and again, I'm not trying to defend those people. I, I guess that I was getting a lot of internet hate for certain pieces I wrote, but I never experienced that as sort of silencing. And I, I guess I want to ask you about mm-hmm. a question. Michelle Goldberg of The New York Times, formerly my colleague at Slate, wrote a response to you in The New York Times where she wrote in part, I'm just curious to get your response to this. Faced with thousands of incensed Twitter users, you might feel it's dangerous to say that Me Too has gone overboard. But in the real world, the men who still run things will congratulate you for your courage. They're talking about people who take on the Me Too consensus. Left-wing Twitter mobs are a great gift to the right since they make defending the status quo seem transgressive and brave. 
And then she continues, certainly social media is a grotesque netherworld of bad faith and cruelty. But as ugly as the intellectual environment is online, if people are truly whispering their discomfort with Me Too, why are they so easy to hear? And I think what she's referring to is the fact that you wrote a piece about this in Harper's, which is a pretty left-wing magazine. You went on CBS this morning. The New York Times said many numerous op-eds criticizing the movement. There are writers at places like The Atlantic who criticize this all the time. So I think her question is, if, if people are being silenced, which is a word I believe you've used, why are they so easy to hear? Um, I don't think they're that easy to hear. And I, there definitely have been some great work. Um, I particularly admire Masha Gessen, who, in order to write her first pieces, kind of said, you know, I was a rape victim. I'm a lesbian. She had to do, say a lot of things to position herself to be able to say, is this a moral panic? Is this a sex panic? Um, I also admire Andrew Sullivan. I admire um, a bunch of people who've started to write about this. Um, and there definitely have been uh, voices uh, criticizing the, this moment. But the issue is, I guess, and this is what I've been noticing, is a very large number of people who aren't kind of contrarians. Like there are some professional contrarians, I guess I would be one of them, who often kind of enter into political debates and for whatever reason, because they're, you know, insane, don't mind having a lot of like hatred on on the level that other people do. But there are also a lot of journalists, writers, novelists, real estate agents, architects, doctors, other people that I spoke to who are not in that kind of, you know, argument making class. And I think those people, and this is why that, you know, um, Saturday Night Live skip was so funny and effective is because it was really capturing the idea. And I mean, I have gotten articles, uh, letters about from people, you know, and they're kind of saying to me, I appreciating my piece, but they say things like, um, totally anonymously, I think this piece is brilliant. Or can you, can you, uh, you can understand I'm writing on my private email, not my office email, but I just wanted to say, I appreciate your piece. So the number of people who don't even feel like they can say out loud, I like this piece is really a little bit startling. And I guess that's what I'm talking about is, is people who feel that they, they have to say exactly what the political accepted political script is. I'm not trying to be glib. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, do you think those people are worried that if they said this on an office email that they liked a Katie Royfe piece, that they could get fired, that they would lose friends? What, what is the, I mean, look, anyone who works in kind of a liberal environment knows there's a certain aspect of groupthink, as I'm sure there are in other environments, and groupthink is almost always stifling and uh, unpleasant and not nice. But I guess what I'm wondering beyond that is what people are so scared of. Well, I think um, a lot of, a very long, large range of things. I think um, a lot of people are writing to me about being in an office meeting and saying something and being told, like, you don't have a right to express an opinion on this. I have people writing to me, you know, from all sorts of angles about their own personal experience with this feeling of being muffled. And I think people are worried about losing their jobs. They're also worried about, um, I hear men um, talking about being worried about something that happened, you know, five years ago. And if they tell you this story, it's like the most boring story in the world. But they're worried this kind of really low-level, kind of like awkward moment is going to turn into something that gets them fired. I mean, people are worried about the stuff or that not gets them fired. But if they're a freelance writer, they're worried that they're not going to be able to, um, you know, get assignments, et cetera, et cetera. So people are worried about professional repercussions. And, and you know, I, I 
will tell you I understand why. I mean, because because if you just look at, um, even before I wrote this piece, the kind of like threats that were coming at me, and, you know, they weren't necessarily um, real, like, threats from people who can follow through against my career, but it does feel pretty upsetting when you're in the center of it. We'll get back to my conversation with Katie Royfe right after this. In the piece you write about Lauren Stein, who was at the Paris Review and Ferris, Strauss and Garreau, the book publishing firm, and who later resigned from the Paris Review under a cloud of inappropriate behavior, which he apologized for. You write in your piece about hearing rumors of, quote, sealed settlements from his FSG time. And you then add, quote, I'll read this. The next morning, I related the troubling new fact of the FSG settlements to a journalist friend. Could it be true? She checked it very thoroughly and called that evening to tell me she could find no truth at all to the settlement rumors. I was disgusted with myself for repeating what was probably a lie about someone I liked and had nothing against. What was wrong with me? So I guess my question for you is, one, why did you have a friend report this? And then you have the friend coming to a conclusion after an afternoon of reporting when settlement rumors are a very hard thing to report. But also, do you feel that that's sort of a sufficient way of addressing the Lauren Stein issue or the allegations that appeared on the media men list? That that anecdote wasn't really meant to be about all of what happened with Lauren Stein or all of what happened with the media men. Um, I really brought up that anecdote because I wanted to write about how enticing and seductive this energy is, how it's so easy to get caught up in this feeling that you're on the side of history and you're on the side of right. And my repeating this story, um, and this person was very close to FSG, so it wasn't that she was like doing my reporting for me. She just happened to be able to kind of get to the bottom of it because of how, who she was. And, um... And the, the idea was was just that I kind of had this disgust at myself for getting so caught up in it. And I also understand why people get caught up in it, because there is a way in which, and in that paragraph I write about how I sort of, you do start thinking about every bad thing every man ever did to you, every person who's behaved badly, and it all kind of blurs into this this weird energy. So I was really more interested in delving into that. And and my point about Lauren Stein and, and with that anecdote and, and that whole sort of section is that I, I just feel that, you know, I, I sort of talk about how sometimes we have to hold two things in our minds at once, that on the one hand, Lauren was a great editor to some women writers, and he was um, also, you know, kind of just, just created this incredibly like fertile, fruitful place, fruitful place for a lot of women writers. And on the other hand, um, there's this other bad stuff that happened and that it's just complicated. And I guess my my sort of plea in that last section of the piece is just that we can, rather than just sort of trying to simplify everything into this political narrative of what happened, you know, the truth of what happens is usually a lot more um, complex. I don't want to compare Lauren Stein to Harvey Weinstein, but in the, or Weinstein, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the you know, Harvey Weinstein made a lot of movies with uh, female protagonists and gave women a lot of roles, uh, certainly more than the major studios were doing. This is when Miramax was in its heyday in the late 90s. Um, I'm not sure that that has any bearing on his personal behavior. I think it's something it shouldn't be forgotten. It shouldn't be wiped out of the record that Harvey Weinstein made these good movies. I don't want those movies banned from being on cable television in the future. But I'm not sure how it complicates or has anything to do with his his sort of uh, off-screen behavior. Well, I think that um, one, comparing Lauren Stein to Harvey Weinstein is sort of part of the problem we're having I was here. Not because, comparing yeah. as you know, um, 
very little sort of publicly came out about Lauren and what happened at the Paris Review. And I and I really think that nobody's really making an argument that he was a, a Harvey Weinstein figure. And I think one of the things that happens in, in this moment that I do find disturbing is just the idea that we kind of leap to judge or to think that we know what's going on in a situation when without all the facts and details. And that so the idea that somebody is accused suddenly means that they're guilty. Um, and and I guess that's the part of it that I find unnerving is just the sort of generalizing. So we start to think about what a man in power does, and it doesn't even matter what the specific man is or what he actually did. No, I was not comparing Lauren Stein and Harvey Weinstein. I'll make the same point about Lauren Stein, forget Harvey Weinstein, which is that whatever behavior he may or may not have done, and again, I don't know all the facts. We know that he's left his job, was that I, I don't know that that changes how we view the fact that he edited women writers and and so on, which again, uh, if he did that in several notable cases, then he should get credit for that. But I don't know that how that changes our our um, our analysis of uh, any actual bad behavior. I write a little bit about the men in media list, and you know, it, it much has been made, and people have pointed out, you know, they're putting things like leering or creepy DMs along with much more serious charges and much more serious behaviors. And I, you know, I wouldn't suggest that these people, you know, these are intelligent women and they know the difference between these things. Um, So I'm not suggesting that they think they're the same thing, but rather that this idea that that putting these things on the continuum just tells you something about this way of thinking. Um, and that, that, that there is a sort of, there, there is somewhere in here a suspicion of that, that, and this sort of idea that women are kind of innocent or childish and they're being assaulted by these kind of lurking male sexual threats. And, you know, one of the things on the media men list that I, that I talk about in the piece is leering. And, um, you know, I just try to imagine, I I have a lot of graduate students and they go to work for places like this. And I try to imagine saying to one of my students, like, I got to warn you about this guy, he's going to leer at you. And I, and I just think to myself how, um, condescending that sounds, uh, and how I would sort of never want to say that to an adult because it would just sound like I thought she was incapable of managing the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are ways in which that sounds condescending and there are ways in which it could be reasonable depending on what exactly leering means. But um, let me just say, I mean, uh, I thought the weakest part of the media men list or the one of the most glaring flaws of it was that it did, in a way, by putting all these things together, conflate um, very, very, very serious things like rape with things like sending um, creepy direct messages on Twitter, which uh, I do not want to defend, but I see the value in separating in, in a list. So, um, and and I feel like some many people who wrote about the list made, made that point. I, I guess... One last thing about your piece, which is that you say that blaming all men seems only a little less ominous than Trump's tendency to blame all immigrants or all Muslims. I guess some of the some of the thing that people were arguing with that, just going back to the the same thing that Michelle Goldberg brought up in her piece, was that we're kind of conflating two different um, power dynamics here. One is like the president of the United States blaming all immigrants or all Muslims for something versus some women anonymously circulating a list which, um, uh, as far as I know, nobody who did not commit any bad behavior has lost their job for. Well, I, I've talked to some, you know, there are 70 men or something on that list. And I, I've definitely um, talked to some of them who've experienced some really strong um, negative 
repercussions in their actual lives. And I just want to read a, a tweet that um, that Dana Tortorici, who's kind of connected or friends with the creator of that list, she says, I get the queasiness of no due process, but losing your job isn't death or prison. And and to me, that tweet kind of encapsulated some of the attitude and, and some of what I found upsetting about the list, which is just the idea of putting these charges anonymously and then saying, oh, well, you know, if someone loses their job or, you know, in certain magazines said a few false positives are worth it. To me, that idea is um, that kind of shadowy accusation. It does remind me of the Hollywood blacklist. It does remind me of kind of the most hysterical and we could say shameful moments in American history where we're sort of abandoning some of our principles. Um, and to me, even if even if it's it's not death or prison, it's just losing your job. I mean, obviously for many people, um, that's a pretty terrifying prospect. So uh, so I, I think there's some some things about the list that that are legitimately creepy. And just to go back to your other point about about the all men um, point, um, I guess that, you know, the reason I say almost as bad is is sort of acknowledging what you're saying. It's not the same as Trump tweeting that. But I have to say that when I think about Trump supporters um, chanting to Hillary Clinton, like, lock her up, lock her up. And then I think about, you know, Twitter feminists t um, saying to me, um, you know, calling me like suck my dick, Katie Royfe or human scum or whatever they're saying or making Halloween masks out of my face. There's a white male Esquire editor who thought that was a good way to express his political views. Um, so those people who are hurling abuse at other women, are they really that different than the Trump supporters shouting lock her up at Hillary Clinton? I, I don't think they are, to be honest, and I don't think it's any better. My answer to that would be people hurling abuse at you on Twitter are no, you know, calling you names and stuff are no better than Trump supporters screaming lock her up. Um, the reason I'm less worried about the former is because they don't have the power of a crazy person as president behind them. See, you're saying they don't have power, but I think they do have power. And I guess that's what I was trying to point out in my piece is that. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's the sort of crux of our of our difference. Go I on. think we should discuss this because the reason I think they have power, what I tried to do in my piece is connect the dots between Twitter feminists, somebody like Dana Tortorici, who's the editor of N Plus One, somebody you quoted, I, I quoted when you talked about the new totalitarian state who's writing for the New Republic. These people are writing in New York Magazine for The Cut. There is not a giant difference. So I can trace, and, and I can trace, I connect in the piece with a more intellectual level of um, Rebecca Solnit, that there is a line to be drawn between the thinking of all of these people, and they are setting the terms of the conversation. And they are policing, and this is a kind of Orwellian thought police, um, they are policing what people can and can't say. And and so I, I don't think these people are so powerless. They're sort of fringe figures. I mean, you're making it sound like they're people kind of hysterical on Twitter. But when I tell you there's an Esquire editor who made a Halloween mask out of my face, like that guy goes to his job and, ha you know, acts normally to people during the day. And some of these people are, you know, high level editors at The New Yorker. I mean, it. this is not... Um, people who aren't setting the conversation. These people are setting the conversation. And I work in a university, so I see that there too. And so what is alarming about this is that there is a very large number of people who are setting the conversation who really think, and they do believe, that someone like me, um, who should be like reviled from humanity and kind of cast out, 
um, shouldn't be allowed to write for a magazine. The mere whisper of my name means that I should be, you know, I should be like boycotted or fired or, you know, all of these things that people are threatening. And there really is a sort of Stalinist element to that, I have to say. And, and it's, it's, it's a lack of belief in freedom of expression. Well, okay. If 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 you were if you were fired for this, then I will. Uh, that would be, you know, I'm, I, I, that 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 seems like it's different. I mean, I just I'm just saying, you know, New York Magazine also has Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Chait, who are two of the most prominent writers in America. I would say, and two of the biggest um, opponents of political correctness. You mentioned Masha Gessen at the New Yorker. The, you know, I I did not. Uh, I don't want to defend Dana Tortorici's tweet about people's jobs are not prison. So, you know, it's okay if they lose their job wrongly. But I I just think that there's a a difference there, which I guess the reason this all started was because you were working on this piece for Harper's Magazine. And there was a story in the New York Times that essentially said you were going to out the creator of the shitty media men list, who turned out to be a woman named Moira Donegan, who had been at the New Republic and decided to out herself uh, in an article for The Cut. That's not exactly what happened, actually. Okay, please tell. Okay, because The New York Times did not say I was about to out her. The kind of fury started before The New York Times even wrote anything at all. What I said to The New York Times was that at that point that people were kind of going bananas on Twitter— I did not know for certain that Moira Donegan was the creator of the Shady Men Media list, which I did not at that time know. So um, my, my and, and, you know, people sort of thought that I was sitting around, like, thinking a lot about Moira Donegan and how I could ruin her life. Um, and that was kind of the general right. fantasy. But the truth is, Moira Donegan was, the fact that she created the list was so unimportant to my piece and really um, not anything I was at all focused on because it just didn't matter to me. What I was really interested in Moira Donegan was about her Twitter and about the tenor of her Twitter and the sort of bloodlust and out of control rage. Um, I quote a line where she talks about breaking a glass, uh, this penis shaped shot glass, don't even ask. And she said, I just wanted to, um, it felt good to destroy something a white man loved, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. So it was sort of the, the, bloodlust in her tweets that I was interested in, not not that she was creating the list. Um, I actually reached out to her because one of, somebody at Harper's said, why are you writing about, why are you quoting this random person on Twitter? And I had heard the rumor that she created the list. So I just um, had asked a fact checker to reach out to her. Oh, I first tried to reach out to her and she wouldn't talk to me. And then I asked a fact checker to reach out to her. And the fact checker may have written a bit aggressively. She also wrote to the journalist friend you were quoting earlier, telling her that I was naming her in the piece. She used the word naming. And the journalist friend who was anonymous in the piece, like, was a little taken aback also, even though I wasn't at all naming her. And it was just um, a little overzealous on the fact checker's part. But the fact checker, so the fact checker, I thought that when the fact checker reached out to Moira, I had many reasons to believe that Moira might want to claim responsibility for the list. There was signs and signals from the universe that it felt to me like Moira might even be comfortable with saying, I'm not the creator of the list. I'm not going to say whether I'm the creator, but I'm I'm okay with your saying I'm widely rumored to be the creator of the list. I mean, there was a whole range of ways she would answer that fact checker. And I actually hadn't heard back from that fact checker um, when this whole fury erupted. So it was kind of a weird moment of um, of. Just to get that on the record, when the, the, the editor that the fact checker said, which said, Katie identifies you as a woman widely believed to be one of the creators of the shitty media men and media list. Were you involved in creating the list? If not, how would you respond to this allegation? Right, I know. It was definitely that's not. not ac- I, I'm that's telling not ac- you this fact checker. It was, that's not well, accurate. No, it's, it's, it's just not. I would have written something different if I were the fact checker. I would have said, 
you know, first of all, are you the creator of the list and are you comfortable with this language? Um, I wouldn't, was not planning to, um, you know, there was no, like, I wasn't planning to name her or out her. I was trying to see if she would take responsibility for the list. Um, you know, many people had, you know, many people, some people had, had offered the idea to me that the all right might go after her if she were connected to the list. I, I obviously didn't even know if she was, was the creator of the list. And I did not think it was likely that someone from the alt-right would care about the media men, but I also wouldn't have taken that risk. That seemed like um, something that would be, you know, I just, if there was even the slightest chance that someone from the alt-right was going to go and burn down her house, like I would never get involved in that, obviously. But I did feel, and and I, you know, I guess there's, there's a bunch of reasons why I did feel like she maybe wanted to claim responsibility for the list or, or that certainly certain people around her were kind of hinting that she was the creator of list in the way that made me think that she may have been about to claim responsibility for the list. So it was really, um, a testing the waters thing, not a, I was going to name her in the piece. I just, I'm just a little confused. So you're saying that like, depending on what, how she responded, the piece would take on a different tone. So if she denied it or something, then it wasn't going to name her. Is that sort if of what she said? Mean? I'm not, obviously if she said, I'm not the creator of the list, I would never have put it in the piece. If she said, I'm not comfortable with being called the creator of the list, I wouldn't have put it in the piece. Um, if she, the real only way I was going to put it in the piece was if she said, I am the creator of the list or I'm okay with the language, which wasn't that she was the creator of the list. It just said widely believed to be. So, you know, I was, I was, and as I say, I hadn't heard back, but I was, I was, um, not in any way. I mean, to be honest with you, the idea, I wasn't interested in Moira being like, it wasn't important to me that Moira was the creator of the list. I was just, it was one of a thousand million tiny things. And I either, you know, it wasn't, it made no difference to the piece at all that she'd be identified that way. So it wasn't something that I would have pursued. You kind of talked about the reaction to this piece, uh, elicited before it came out, which, um, were people saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't write for Harp, maybe other people shouldn't write for Harper's and, and so on and so forth. And I saw your interview on CBS and you kind of said that this was the fact that people can't handle differing opinions about things anymore. Um, is that fair? Somebody offered to pay people to withdraw their articles. Then there were people saying the fact that you would even have a piece by Katie Royfee is a sign that we need to boycott Harper's Magazine. I mean, you know, you probably saw a little bit of this, just sort of the whisper of my name. And I think people kind of, you know, this isn't about reading what's actually in my piece or engaging with my ideas. Obviously, I don't think everybody has to agree with me. I'm not like a big believer in like kumbaya, sisterhood, let's hold hands. I was... What, what shocked me was kind of the suggestion, the hint of a suggestion, I think Andrew Sullivan took this up in his piece, that there should sort of be a list of people who are like, we're forbidden from even hearing anything they say. And, you know, this has historically been true of me. I Gawker ran a piece called Shut Up, Katie Roy Fee. I mean, they're sort of like, don't even speak. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And I guess... Um, it's that idea that we should boycott Harper's, that, you know, advertisers should pull their advertisements, that, you know, this sort of sense that we can't, a, a piece that deviates slightly from um, what is the accepted narrative um, should not appear or we should not hear from this person. That, I guess, is is what is troubling to me more than anything else. And, right. You know, I have to believe that I don't think it was really all about the outing Moira. I think it was also my name being attached to it. And there's a lot of kind of associations people have with my work and what it's going to be. And it was really 
um, a combination of those things. And I think that um, that desire to sort of have me not speak, which I felt very strongly and viscerally, and it really was like having a mob outside your house with torches. It felt like that. Um, and I'm sure you've felt a little bit of it sometimes, you know, with political stuff. It's that that idea is, is what I think is threatening. And because it's increasingly part of our political language, both on the left and the right, you know, the way in which um, feminists are behaving in this way and how I, I really do, I can't help thinking we should be better than than Trump supporters and we should be um, more tolerant of different points of view. And, and these are really complicated questions, things like sexual harassment, what constitutes an abuse of power. And they're just going to be disagreements between reasonable and honorable and right-thinking people. A lot of the critiques of your article before it came out, again, people had not read it, were that it was going to out Moira Donegan, not that you were saying things that people disagree with. Now, I don't, I don't believe that that's all that Fury was about. I think that there was a lot of elements to it, and that was sort of the excuse. You know, there's always, if we think about the Dreyfus affair or something, there's always like an excuse, like a little thing that the anger is hinging on. But I think the anger was, was bigger than that. Right. I guess maybe maybe we've hit the hit the nub of our disagreement by comparing this to the Dreyfus affair. But um, I, I, I it just feels like the the stakes are lower. But but I, I uh, to, to follow up on what you said, clearly uh, people should be open to uh, differing viewpoints and uh, people on the left should be better than Trump supporters. You say clearly, but it's that is not clear to a lot of people. Well, uh, maybe people will listen to this podcast and uh, they will become clear to them. Katie Royfe, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and staying beyond the allotted time of 30 minutes that we agreed to. So thank you for that. <laughs> and your article is out in Harper's Magazine now. And uh, I encourage people to uh, read it and the articles about the debate surrounding it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs with help today from Mary Wilson at the Slate offices in Brooklyn. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Looking for more great shows? Slate's spoiler specials are not reviews of current movies, but post views, audio critiques meant to be played after you've seen the film. Slate movie critic Dana Stevens leads discussions of twist endings, plot holes, and other secrets you don't read in the reviews. It's the kind of discussion you have with friends as you're leaving the theater. From time to time, Slate TV critic Willa Paskin will convene a panel of critics to discuss a season of television. Recent topics include Star Wars The Last Jedi, Phantom Thread, The Shape of Water, and Season 4 of Black Mirror. Every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Spoiler Special. 